Jesus, it tells us in Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, it says he is departing. He went from there, departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. So uh, this is uh, going into the last year of his public ministry. We're going to see him taking more time alone with the boys, you know. Uh, they're still arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who's going to sit on his right hand, his left hand. He prayed all night before he picked these guys. Sometimes they think he must say, Oy vey, Father, are you sure these are the guys, you know? Uh, in fact, in John, he says, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil, you know, speaking of Judas. So uh, he knew God's you know, plan would be exercised in their lives. The future of the church is uh, with these men. And he's uh, taking them alone now. And there's some lessons to learn. There's hostility in Israel. The religious leaders are looking for an opportunity to kill him. And uh, he has withdrawn. And he's gone now up into the area of Lebanon today, Tyre and Sidon. And it is a place certainly where there is some reputation of Israel and uh, of her Messiah that would come. Uh, we are told in First Kings, when Solomon's building the temple, it says, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants unto Solomon, for he had heard that they had anointed him king in the place of his father. For Hiram was ever a lover of David. Hiram was ever a lover of David. So, Jesus is going up into this area of Tyre and Zidon. He's going to confront a woman who's a Canaanite. And yet she's going to say, O Lord, thou son of David. No doubt that reputation is still rumbling through the Canaanite community about Hiram's relationship with David. And the prophecies, no doubt, he had heard. And about a greater son of David that would come. Um, so Jesus withdraws himself now up into this area. And, the, and the, the word departed is literally he withdrew. He, he wants to do that. Now, look, he's not surprised he's going to run into this gal. Uh, sometimes when we read through this account, he says it's not fitting to give the bread, you know, to the dogs. We think, thanks, Lord. That was kind of nice, you know. No, no, none of this has surprised him. You remember when he goes to Samaria um, in John chapter 4, verse 4, and he's going to minister there to the woman from Samaria, the woman at the well. She's also Gentile. She's a Samaritan. And the Jews wouldn't pass through the area of Samaria. They would go down the, the Jordan Valley on the other side of the Jordan River and then cross back over by Jericho and go up to Jerusalem so they didn't uh, contaminate themselves in the area of Samaria. Well, Jesus, it says in John 4, verse 4, that he must needs go through Samaria. And the must need was because of a woman he would talk to at the well. And yes, he's getting away from Israel, going up into the area of Tyre and Sidon now, up along the coast. It was beautiful up there. There's mountains that come down to the ocean there, and uh, he knows that there's going to be an encounter. She's a Gentile, and his disciples still need to learn that there is a broader ministry that he will demonstrate and exercise after his ascension through them, and it will be in regards to Gentiles. So some of that is inculcated into their thinking and their lives during this time, and so it says, Jesus then, with the guys, went thence and departed, withdrew into the coasts of Tyre and Zidon, and he's going to talk to this Canaanite woman. Now, I look at this, and I'm thankful. You know, some, I think Spurgeon says he ministers around the circumference. I like that. But I just like the fact that he crosses borders. You know, I got saved in 1972. And I was on the other side of the border. 
Um, I mean, I didn't fit in. My, my mom was Lutheran. My dad was Catholic. I wore that out a long time ago, you know. Uh, they would make us go, and, and then we get old enough, we, we cut church and went to Horn and Hard House and got coffee and breakfast. And Because uh, I thought, well, if church is so great, why are you sending me and you ain't going? And I hated ties anyway. Um, seemed like purgatory wearing one of those. You know, so then you go from there to drugs and you go there. And, and, but, you know, there was a time when Jesus, look, he came into my life. He understood the music I was listening to. He understand the morality or lack thereof I had in my life. He understood the things that were filling my brain. I was a Canaanite. I was an idolater. And he crossed religious borders to come into my life. I know many of you are thinking he did the same thing with me. He came to me when the church wouldn't and it wasn't reaching out to me and nobody was getting to me. And he crossed some borders and I'm thankful that he's a God who crosses borders. And he came into my life as he came into many of yours. Look, some of us grew up in the church and that's wonderful too. It's a a different, you know, you go through the Bible again and and the Bible has to have Jacobs because there's enough of us around, we ought to find ourselves in the Bible. The Bible has to have Joseph's, men of sterling character. The Bible has to have Moses, the guy that does good and then loses his temper. Imagine that for a Christian. You know, the Bible has to have Davids who fall into adultery and, and murder. The, the Bible's, ha- you know, it has to have Peter who has always got foot and mouth disease. And the Bible, <coughs> we get a complete picture of our Savior and our King from that collection of personalities. And it's necessary for all of them because there's a little bit of all of that in us. And this Seraphonician woman is one of those characters. And you and I, look around this room, we're some of those characters too. Uh, again, I have people who have come to the church and stayed here because they've seen some of you all sitting here. And they said, i seen that guy. I knew that guy in the world. That guy can know God. I knew I can, I can know God too. So uh, he, he goes now. And look, verse 22 says this, And behold... That's an imperative, not a suggestion. Jesus wants us to behold this. Matthew says, you need to think about this. Behold, a woman of Canaan, a Canaanite woman. She came out of the same coasts. And she cried unto him, saying, now, this is not, hey, one time. This is, the tenses are, she's, She's crying, and she's continually saying while she's crying. It's going on and on. We're going to know that because the disciples are going to say, Lord, send her away. You know, she won't stop. She's crying after us. So it says here, she cried unto him continually saying, have mercy is an imperative. Lord, you have to have mercy on me. Look, oh, Lord, she calls Jesus, oh, Lord, Back in Israel, they just want to kill him because he ain't washing his hands. Now up here, this Canaanite woman is saying, O Lord, and then look, thou son of David. Back in Israel, the the religious leader is saying he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Here he is up in, in, in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile territory, with a Canaanite woman who, because of her need, see the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't realize they had the need. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were keeping the law. This is a woman who understands her need, who hears of Jesus. I remember in those days before I got saved, I was starting to hear from a friend here and there about Jesus. And I'm thinking, well, this is kind of weird, you know, just what's this all about, you know. She hears the Lord, the son of David, Hiram. We have a, we have a heritage that's attached to this somehow. And she then finds out somehow he's in the area. I'm sure he let it be known because he was planning to meet up with her. And she's uh, now clamoring after him. And she's crying over and over again, Lord, you have to have mercy. Lord, help me, Lord. You have to do this. Have mercy. It's an imperative. She's saying it over again. Have mercy. And look what she says. On me, not on my daughter. O Lord, thou son of David. 
because here's why she wants mercy for herself. Because my daughter is continually being grievously vexed by a devil. Look, all of you, you know, who have had prodigals know this, what she's crying. Have mercy on me. My heart is so broken over my daughter. My heart is so broken over my son. You know, they're, they're under the enemy's influence. They're out there. You know, she is crying to the Lord saying, Lord, you have to help me. My heart is so broken. My life is so destroyed. It's not worth living. I, every day my daughter is shrieking, screaming. The demon constantly has in control of her. Lord, you have to help me. I can't deal with it. My heart is broken. I don't want to live. I don't want to breathe. I don't want to go another mile, Lord. He's the Lord of the people who cry those things, you know. He's the Lord and the Savior of the people who say those things genuinely and know their need. You have to mercy on me. Lord, you have to. It's imperative because my daughter is continually being vexed by this demonic spirit. I wonder, again, how many times we should be crying to him for our son or our daughter, maybe in... And we're not, maybe because we've been through verse 23, but he answered her, not a word. Look, uh, his silence didn't silence her. She will not let up. Sometimes we think his silence means refusal. I've been praying for my son, for my prodigal, my daughter, my son. I've been crying to him, and I get nothing. Uh, you know, sometimes I, I'll hear from parents, and, and I don't blame them. I probably feel the same way. I've been crying the Lord for my kid. He's got this going on or that going on. It's been years now, and it's torturous. And if God's a God of love, why is, I can't stand it. I don't know what to do. You know, Why is he silent? Why is he not answering? And that's her experience at first. His silence can be cruel, seemingly, to her. He's not... He doesn't answer her a word. He's standing right there. We don't get the sense he looked at her. He didn't answer her. And sometimes we can feel that way with the Lord, can't we? She's crying out with all of her heart. Verse 23 says, but he answered her not a word. And then his disciples came to him and they were beseeching him. The tenses are saying to him now. Send her away. The idea is dismiss her. Get rid of her. Here's the reasoning. For she crieth after us. Eh, wrong. She has a, you know, the, oh really? She's crying after you? Are you the son of David? I thought she was crying after me. You know, you know, she's crying after us. You got to be kidding me. What are you guys going to do for her? You're the send her away crowd. You know, they, they had the same thing when he fed the 5,000. Send them away, Lord. Now she's everywhere they go. They're tired. You know, send them away. That's their ministry at this point in time. And uh, she's crying after us. Is that crazy? You know, sometimes, look, I think we can let our hearts get there. Jesus is moving slowly. He's sometimes wearing somebody down, sometimes bringing them to the real place of brokenness and genuineness. And and they can be crying, and we, we get that attitude. They won't leave me alone. You had it, you know, you talk to them. You do their just. Well, and Jesus is intimately involved like he is here, we're going to see. And I think, Lord, you know, one person at a time. That's how you change the world. That's how you reach the lost. Help me never to look past that, Lord, because I am selfish enough of a man that I could do that, Lord. They're hassling us. She's hassling us. Get rid of her. These are the apostles. Still in training, obviously. And he answered. Now the, the grammar demands he's talking to them because they just said she's crying after us. And it says, and he answered and said, now it's not answering like it's a question. His response to them is, and, and I'm not, you know, it's just, he says this, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. John's going to write in his other in his gospel chapter 10, look, I have other sheep that are not of this flock, you know. 
And John wrote that, you know, in his 90s, and it was obvious to him by then because the whole Gentile world had been affected. They remembered what the Lord said. Here to these guys, he says, look, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's listening to that. She's listening to that. He hasn't answered her. He's answering the guys because they say get rid of her. The answer he gives to the guys must speak to her heart and say, hey, you ain't get, you know, there's no progress being made here at all. Because he says, I'm, I'm, I'm sent, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She's a Canaanite. She's not a sheep. Now, this is what's happening, though. He's going to be merciful to this woman. He knows it. He knows the end from the beginning. But he, he needs to communicate to his disciples, yes, because of hostility, we've left the regions of, of Judea and Galilee. And I'm going to show miraculous mercy to a woman here, and it's important for you to understand that I have not turned away from my, camp, my calling as Messiah in regards to the nation of Israel. I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. When he says that, look what it says. Then, this, this gal's, we got to meet her someday, you know, soon. Then she came and worshipped him. And it's an imperfect tense. She started worshipped and continued worshipping him, saying, Lord, and then it's a present imperative, you have to continually help me, Lord. I need you in my life. Look, isn't it interesting? He didn't answer her a word. So then she's got to deal with this idea is he don't care about me. You're not talking to me. He's silent. Then he finally, she hears him talk to the disciples and said, I'm not sent to this Canaan. I'm not sent to anybody but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It says when she gets the silent treatment and then hears that the Lord has been called to take care of her, it says then she worships him. We just think of that. Sometimes we give up on the Lord so easily, don't we? You know, people say, you need to pray for this, you need to pray for that. And then, you, you know, you talk to the person and say, yeah, I don't know what to do. I prayed for it, nothing happened. I said, really, how long have you been praying for? I prayed 15 minutes and he didn't answer, so. <laughs> she comes and she worships him. Just think what that means. And again, she calls him Lord. And she says, you're the only one. You have to help me. There's no help anywhere else. Worshiping, not bitter. You know, it's just so interesting because no doubt every other resource had failed, and all of a sudden she's hearing, and she probably had heard, because multitudes had come through Galilee, and she probably had heard word about this carpenter, this one who no doubt was the son of David that they had heard about in Tyre and Zidon. And she worships him and says, Lord, help me. But he answered, and he said, Now, it is not meat, it's not fitting to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Jesus is finally warming up to her, right? It's not fitting for me to take the children, children of Israel, to take their bread and cast it to the dogs. It sounds harsh. Now, she catches on to what he says here because he uses a particular word, kenurion, which speaks of literally in the Greek, it's the lap dog. You know, the, the Jews didn't have curse words like we do. Don't think of them. But the Jews didn't have curse words. So they would call the Gentiles goyim, dogs. That's how you insulted somebody. This is a different word. This is even higher than a Gentile, this word here. You know, and she catches it. He, he, said, she, he says here, it's not fitting to take the bread from the children's table and cast it to the house pets, the lap dogs, literally. You know, I don't think it was those little foo-foo dogs like we have now, but, you know. And in, in fact, in Israel, it wasn't common if you, at the end of a meal, if your hands or your face was greasy, to take a piece of bread and wipe it on your hands, wipe your mouth and throw it on the floor for these house dogs. And Israel was doing that with him. They were wiping their hands of him, wiping their mouth of him, and casting the bread of life under the table. And here's this woman begging for it, what they want to throw away, what they want to kill. Sounds harsh. 
And she said she understands it. She caught it. Truth, Lord, that's true. It's not right to take the children's bread and cast it to the house pets of the dogs. Yet, the dogs, the canurion, she caught it. The dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What she's saying is, you're my master. And I'm willing your crumbs are enough for me. I know I'm not a a sheep from Israel. I know I'm a Canaanite. I know I'm a dog under the table. Lord, but even the house pets, they eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And your crumbs are enough for me. In fact, she uses, it's a present tense, Matthew writes, the dogs eat the crumbs that are falling from the table. And she sees herself in that position. She sees it happening right before her eyes, you know. She sees him there in her her presence. And they're having a conversation now. He, he finally talked to her. First, he didn't answer, didn't say nothing. Then he just said, I'm not sent to the Gentiles. I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now he finally talks, turns around and talks to her and says, hey, it's not fitting to give the bread to the dogs, you know. And, you know, she caught it remarkably. And he knew she would. And she said, truth, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs. Your crumbs are enough. They are, aren't they? Aren't they? Even the dogs eat the crumbs that are falling from their master's table, and you're my master, and the crumbs that fall from you, Lord, are enough for me. We feel that way sometimes. Sometimes when you're completely worn out and you're just kind of broken down, you know, I feel that way. Lord, just some crumbs. Oh, I'm not asking for a, a Lee's hoagie here. Just some crumbs, Lord. Just the crumbs from your table are enough for me. You just give me some of those things, Lord. I need it. Even they, the idea is there's still hope here. You know, to to an outward observer would think he's, she's rejected. She knows something about him in her heart. And there's still hope. I, I hope in your lives, look, when somebody's fallen apart, maybe you're crying out for a prodigal or a child. The lesson here is to do that. And even when he seems silent, even when he seems, you know, that kid's gone, that son or daughter, they're just gone, you know. No, no, there's still hope. There's still hope. Just give me some crumbs, Lord. Still hope. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee, even as thou wilt, even as you are willing. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. In in, in the unseen realm, at a distance, none of that matters to Jesus. He's the Lord of lords and the King of kings. He says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you desire. And wherever her daughter is, a mile away, two miles away, she's delivered. What was it like when mom came home? What was it like when mom came home? What's it like when a, you know, I've had folks here say to me, dear friend, you know, there's one side of the prodigal story where the prodigal comes home and the father wraps his arm around him and receives him. He said, but the other part of the prodigal story is when the father then, night after night, walks by and peeks into the bedroom and sees his prodigal home sleeping in the house again. Home. <clears throat> what was it like for that mom to go home her daughter didn't growl when she came to the door. She didn't go, you know, the, she's, she's delivered. She comes out, Mom, you know, I just, what happened? I don't know. I saw an angel, this light, whatever it was. And for these two women who now are no doubt both believers in Christ, they must wrap their arms around each other, sisters, as a, as a deepened relationship. What an interesting picture, this Seraphonician woman what takes place there where nobody can see. He gives this to her. Look, in light of his silence, in light of all of this, he says, great is thy faith. Because her faith stood the test of 
he wasn't answering. Seemed like he was silent. Her faith stood the test of, oh, he's taking care of other people, but he ain't taking care of me. We can do that sometimes. Her faith stood the test of, not right to give that to dogs. Her faith was great. It endured all of those things because there was something about Jesus. There was something about him. Wouldn't you love to have heard the tone of his voice and look into his eyes? Were his eyes smiling when he said, I, you know, he wasn't mean, hey, babe, you think I'm going to take the kids' food and cast it to you dogs? You know, I don't think he's, he was like that at all. I think he, he looked at her and I think he almost smiled and said, it's not fitting to take the children's bread and give it to the house pets, is it? Whatever his countenance was, it drew her on. It didn't push her away. And he has the ability to say those things we might think are hard to be said. But he's so different than, than you and I are when we confront someone. And Jesus departed from thence. How long was he in Lebanon? You know, how long was he up there? He was up there two weeks, three weeks. It were about a month after the Passover when he fed the 5,000. We're going to see another feeding here. We're about a month after that. Was he there two weeks? Did she go get her daughter and bring her daughter back to meet the son of David? I think so. I think so. Um, remarkable scene. Jesus then departs from that area, that, and he came nigh, literally towards the Sea of Galilee. Um, Mark chapter 7 tells us specifically that he left the Seraphonician woman's home came in the area near Galilee and that he was in Decapolis. Mark 7.31 specifically says he's in the area of Decapolis. That's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, where Gadara was, where the pigs ran down, the embankment and so forth. It's a Gentile area, Decapolis, ten cities. And uh, he comes to that area, still not going back into Jewish territory. He's still trying to spend time alone with his guys. But there's something else he knows about Decapolis. As he gets there, it says, well, don't believe me. Let's read it. I don't ever believe anything I say. You need to read it and make sure I'm not making stuff up. And Jesus departed from there, and he came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee. And he went up into a mountain, and he sat down there. That's an imperfect tense. He sat down, and he remained sitting. He's setting the stage for something. He knows what's going to happen. And he's thinking, all right, Father, this is my next appointment. I'll just go up here and sit down and wait for them. They're coming, you know. And all of a sudden it says these crowds begin to come. It says, and great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were sick. How did they know? You know, understand the last time he was in this area, when he came and he confronted the demoniac. And he delivered him, and the, the legion of demons left him. And the demoniac said, Lord, can I go with you? Look, the interesting thing was there are three prayers in that incident. One of the prayers uh, is by the demons. They say, the Lord, don't send us into the abyss. Let us go into the herd of swine. He just says, go. Their prayer was answered. When the people from, from the Gadara come out, and see Jesus and all the pigs bobbing around the Sea of Galilee, they beg Jesus to leave. He's ruining the swine business. And they get their prayer answered. The only person that doesn't get their prayer answered is the, the demoniac who's sitting there in his right man, mind and says, Lord, can I go with you? Nah. Go on home, tell your friends. I can't believe he had friends. <laughs> Go home and tell your friends what great things God hath done for you. Now he's coming back to Decapolis. And whatever that demoniac did, multitudes now are running to him. Multitudes are coming. And it says they're bringing with them those that were lame. You guys can study these words on your own. Lame usually means limping. We think about that. But it also means you can be missing a limb. It's a specific word. The blind, obviously, the dumb, those that couldn't speak. The maimed has the idea of being distorted or 
crooked. It can also mean a missing limb, but some, oftentimes it means somebody that has a distorted or crooked limb. And many others, and look what it says, they cast them down at his feet and he healed them. The, the Greek indicates the multitudes are coming and as fast as they're throwing people down at Jesus' feet, they're being healed. We, we, we can't imagine the scope of this. And this is in Gentile territory. And it says in verse 31, insomuch that the multitudes wondered when they saw, first of all, you don't see it, but you hear it, the dumb are speaking. Was well, I imagine people that were with their kids or their wife who couldn't speak, all of a sudden they're speaking, praising God. They heard the dumb speaking. Now look what it says. They saw the maimed to be made whole. Those that were missing feet or missing hands or missing limbs are made whole. Think of what's happening. Think of that. Think that, you know, that your kids drag you out there. You're 40 years old. You, you know, you've been spending your whole life with crutches because you're missing your right leg. And they get out there. Imagine, imagine this, you know, throw you down at this guy's feet, this carpenter from, uh, from Israel, and your leg grows back. Boop. You know, you come home with one shoe and one bare foot, you know. I mean, just imagine what's that guy when he comes home or that woman talking to their spouse when they come home or their kids when they come home. Imagine how it's continuing to spread. Those that were maimed were made whole. The lame are walking, the blind are seeing, and look what it says. And they glorified the God of Israel. These are Gentiles. The Pharisees are trying to kill the Messiah. The Gentiles are giving glory to the God of Israel. It's important for the disciples to see that because they're going to be spread out. you know, And they're going to have ministry to Gentile populations. Very interesting. So... It says, then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have continued with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I will not. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. I will not send them, this Gentile crowd, away fasting lest they faint in the way. They've been with him for three days. That tells you how remarkable the experience was. They go on three days without... When was the last time you gave, gave up food for three days to be with Jesus? You know, because something that remarkable was going on. How many people had been healed in three days? They wouldn't leave. They've been with him three days. And as fast as they're throwing people down, people are being made whole. People are receiving their sight. People are shouting and praising the Lord. The, the lame, you know, limbs are being restored. So how many people were healed in three days? And now finally, he says, you know, they've been with me three days. They haven't eaten. I refuse to send them away without nourishment. He's the same with us. Because I don't want them to faint in the way. He doesn't want us fainting in the way either. Um, I think how many, what the, the impact of this is incredible. So his disciples said to him, whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude. They don't say, duh, chapter 14, we already did this, we know what happens now. Isn't it interesting? You would think, you would think they would know for sure, but the possibility is they're not thinking this is going to happen in Gentile territory. And he wants them to know that. You know, the, again, the feeding of the 5,000 in Galilee is the only miracle before the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels. You have to realize what an impression it made on these guys, and it's written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This one's only in Matthew and Mark. This is in Gentile territory. Of course, Mark was writing to the Romans of the Gentiles. Matthew's writing to the Jews, and I think he likes telling the Jews that Jesus did miracles in Gentile territory, and the Lord's using that as he inspires them to write. It says his disciples said, well, what, what should we have? How are we? It ain't we, boys. Haven't you learned that yet? You know, when should we have so much bread in the wilderness to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus says to them, 
well, how many loaves do you have? They're going deja vu, you know. How many loaves do you have? And they say seven and a few little fish. That's always what our resources are, by the way, and, and when, whenever there's a need, you know, wonderfully Again, in Matthew earlier, he just says, Jesus says, give them to me. Lord, I don't have, what I have is not enough. When I look at the city, when I look at our country, when I look at my family, what I have, I ain't got the goods, Lord, what I have, it ain't enough. How's it ever going to matter with the scope of the problems that are around me? You know, I'm home every day and coming home from work and have to do this and or I have a, you know, we're trying to get this straightened out, or Lord, I'm here with four little kids. I got a pile of wash every day. It's like purgatory. It's never going to go away till the rapture happens. Or Lord, I'm tied up in this. Or Lord, I don't have these gifts. Or Lord, you know, all I'm doing is this. Lord, how? And it's, it's the same thing. You drive down 95, and I do it sometimes, and you see row home after row home after row home after row home, millions of people. And how many of them are unchurched? How many of them haven't heard the truth yet? You think, Lord, I'm just one person. Or what in the world does that? How does where where does that weigh anything in the balances? And that's not the question. The question: Are we willing to take what we have and put it in His hands? Okay, Lord, I'm 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 just this jerk jerky guy. I love you. I'm going to heaven. I don't know why you even let me do the things I do, but I got nothing here, Lord. I ain't got the goods. I look at the 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 need and what's going on. And, and I think he'll say this, if you'll just give me today, you just give me now what you have. You just, you just give me the, the, the couple, couple little stinky fish that you got there. Just give that to me. I'm not asking you for what you don't have. He will never ask us for what we don't have, but he will never neglect what we do have in his request. He's our Lord, not just our Savior. They said, well, we got seven, uh, you know, little English muffin type of things and uh, and a few little fish. Now, look, it says in verse 35, and he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. Matthew, at the feeding of the 5,000, says Jesus commanded the multitude. But Mark, Luke, and John all say Jesus had the disciples to do. He commanded them to sit down. He did it through the disciples. It clearly says here that Jesus himself talked to this multitude. He he didn't have his guys do it. This Gentile crowd. Jesus talked to them and told them to sit down. Sit down, guys. 4,000 men plus women and children. What kind of crowd is that? Does he walk through the crowd and tell them? Or is, is it one of those deals where his voice just carries? You know, he just says, sit down. He has everybody sit down. And he took the seven loaves, it says, and the fishes, and he gave thanks. Again, the remarkable scene, he says, grace. And these Gentiles hadn't been in the last time this had happened. They're thinking the same thing. A couple little stinky fish, seven English muffins, 11,000 of us, and he's saying, grace, you know, just imagine for them, this is a new experience. We, we're like, all right, Joe, we studied this a couple chapters ago. Well, we're studying it again. He put it in twice, not me. You can argue with him when you get home. And, you know, the interesting thing is because this ministry is to the Gentiles in Decapolis, and he finishes his Gentile ministry here in his earthly ministry. And his last great public mi- miracle before the resurrection was the feeding of the 5,000 in Israel. And both in Galilee and Decapolis, he consummates his ministry with a miraculous feast in both of those places. That, that was the wrapping up of his public ministry in both places with a miraculous feast. And I wonder why. I, I have my opinion, I'm going to tell you, but I'm seeing if I can get you wondering. You know, I wonder why. I, I think because that's what he longs for, is the marriage supper of the Lamb. He longs for the day that we're all sitting at his table. You know, the... One of the, the joys in my life is, you know, we have a birthday party with all the kids and grandkids or Thanksgiving or Christmas. When the table is filled, there's 16, 17, 18, there's a circus going on. I just sit there and look at it and think this is unbelievable. But it harks of something. It, I, I look at that and think I'm the richest man in the world. 
I don't envy Elon Musk or Bill Gates. I don't care how much money any of them have. I'm richer than they are because I don't want more, and they do. You know, somebody asked uh, Rockefeller once, uh, you know, what do you want when you have $4 million? He said, five. You know, you sit there at that table and you think, this is speaking about something that's, go- that's coming. When we sit at his table, look, it's important, particularly for those of you who may have grown up in a sexually abusive home, a broken home, alcoholic parent, abusive situation, and you're kind of afraid in some ways. I understand. Reticent. You know, when we say our father art in heaven, some people almost cringe because their concept of fatherhood. There's a table. And there's a placemat with your name on it. And he is longing to have his sons and daughters at his banquet. And Jesus said he's going to gird himself, take the part of the servant, and come and serve. Imagine that. Imagine that. His last two great public miracles are both miraculous feasts. And now he's got all the Gentiles from Decapolis. He's walked through the crowd. He's told them to sit down. It says now he begins to break the bread. He gives thanks. And he said he break and gave. That's a continuous process to his disciples. Now they know what's going on now. They've done this before. And the disciples then continue to give to the multitude. And look what it says. They did all eat and they were filled. And they took up of the broken of the broken meat, the broken pieces that was left, Seven baskets full. They did, that did eat were 4,000 men besides women and children. And then he sent away the multitude. He took the ship and he came into the coast of Magdala. So we see him here. Look, the, the last time, remember at the end of the feast, the disciples came back and each one of them had a, a, a basket. It's called, it's a hand basket. Cupinos. Uh, each one of them had one. So at the end of that day, there's 12 of them. They picked up the pieces that were left over, and they came back, and each one of them had their own basket. And he must have said grace with them. They must have just thought, are you kidding me? What in the world? They're all so impressed. They include it in all four Gospels. At the end of this day, they have seven baskets. Now, this is a different word for basket. This is the large Basket. It says when Paul was in Damascus, they wanted to kill him. The disciples let him down over the wall, Acts 9.25, in a basket. It was a ba- basket big enough for, for, for Paul, Saul, to get in. Those are Gentile baskets exclusively. And here at the end of this day, there's seven of these big baskets filled with leftovers. Because the, the disciples are supposed to see something in that. They're supposed to see something. You know, it, it, it's a number of completeness. completeness. Uh, you know, the, we'll, we'll have letters to seven churches. Uh, the, the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, church at Galatia, church at Ephesus, church at Philippi, church at Colossia, and church at Thessalonica. There, there are letters to seven churches. Jesus tells the, the kingdom parables. When we went through chapter 13. There are seven parables of the kingdom. You know, we're in Revelation right now, and the Lord speaks to seven churches. And here are these seven baskets full. And it's a picture of, no doubt, the completeness of his heart and his ministry to the Gentiles. And these men have to see that and understand it. Because, look, whatever prejudice we have in our culture today, the prejudice between Jew and Gentile was almost unimaginable to us. The Jews thought that the Gentiles were just... Fuels for the fire of hell. Presto locks. That's all Gentiles were. They prayed every day. Thank God I'm not a, you know, a woman, a dog, or a Gentile. So we started every morning. 
and the and the the prejudice that was in that world is unimaginable. You know, again, when Jesus told them to shake off the dust of their feet, if someone would receive them, that's because when they left Israel, if they went up to where the Seraphonician woman is in Lebanon, when they came back to the border of Israel, they shook the dust off their feet because they knew if they brought Gentile dust into Israel, they would pollute the land of Israel. That's you know, that, and that was ingrained. It, that was going on for a couple thousand years. That was not new. And these disciples that are going to go to the lost world need to understand the heart of their master. And here, these Gentiles get the same treatment. They're all filled. There's seven baskets, Gentile baskets, the big baskets, left over. The Pharisees also. Now, he took the ship. He goes to Magdala, where Mary Magdalene is from, on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came tempting and they desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. So this is an odd combination. Pharisees and Sadducees never got along. They didn't like each other. But it's the same thing we see. All different kinds of evil clubs will join up to fight against righteousness. All kinds of wicked people that normally don't get along will join forces to take down the one thing that drives them the most crazy. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, if Jesus wasn't around, they'd be fighting with each other. They join up and they come and it says they're tempting him, asking him for a sign. Well, he should have said, look back at verse 30. What do you mean you want a sign? As fast as they're throwing people down, their legs are growing back, they're getting healed. What do you mean? Show us a sign. Well, they're saying, no, no. Now we want the sign ek out of heaven. Maybe they're thinking of Elijah uh, because the, the Old Testament ended, well, at least the prophets Malachi before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, that Elijah is going to come. Maybe for some reason, and they're tempting him. You know, let, it, let something come down from heaven, he says to them. Then he says, he answers like this. Uh, when it is evening, you know, we do this red sky morning, sailor take warning, red sky at night, sailor's delight. We do that. We stole it from here. He says, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. And in the morning... It will be foul weather today, for the sky is red. Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. Then he says, O ye hypocrites, you can discern the signs of the sky, the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, he said, you want signs? The signs of the times are all around you. He challenges them. Look, that, that we might see the most natural tendencies in our culture, in our continent, at our latitude, you know, from one country to another. You know, you, you go south of the equator and, and they're heading into summer now. We're heading in the winter, you know, depending where you are. There may be different signs relative to weather and harvest but the signs of the times are the same everywhere in every culture. And when we talk to Christians in Muslim countries, Christians around the world, in China, we hear they all are anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. They all are. Now, these are the signs of the times, charon, keros. You know, the, the Jesus, you know, Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have no need, brethren, that I write unto you regarding times and seasons. Times, chronos, are just long periods of times that are indiscriminate. When he adds keros, that means seasons. That these long indiscriminate period of time, it's been 2,000 years, they're marked off by seasons. Specific prophetic things will take place and let you know that this time has run its course for a long time. You have now entered a season. When you see the fig tree put forth its branch, you know summer is nigh. There's a season that's happening. We've seen that in our lifetimes. So he, sa- he says here, you know, you can discern this, the, the weather, the signs of the, the, the sky you hypocrites, you want signs? The signs of the times, they're all around you. They're everywhere. 
By the way, this is the leaven of the Pharisees, Sadducees. How many religious people, quote, religious people in the world today don't want anything to do with the second coming of Christ? They'd rather join the culture, join the morality of the culture. They don't want to hear anything about Christ returning. That's the blessed hope. That's, that's, the, that's the deal for us. That's, we go through everything we go through here because we love him and we're going to get to be with him forever. Look, he says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Show us a sign, they had said. I'm sure they're happy about this. A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, but there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left and he departed. So how many today might say to Christians, oh yeah, where's your God? Of your God's a God of love, why is this going on? God, look, and you and I sometimes in a season of weakness or struggle in our lives, even though God's given us his Holy Spirit and he's given us his word, we can actually find ourselves going to him and say, Lord, would you just do this? I need some encouragement. Could you just give me a sign? You know, and, you know, he, and yet we know the signs of the times. We see the world we're living in. We see what's going. You know, even kindergarten Christians can see the signs of the times now. You turn on the news, you see COVID, you see war, you see the insanity. Even a brand new Christian can go, duh, something's going on. You know, they don't know, they don't know the eschatological terms. They don't know that, you know, it's. Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, you know, he's not going to speak of himself. He's going to take the things of me and show them to you, and he will tell you things to come. And whenever there's revival in church anywhere, the return of Christ is center stage in those, those seasons in the church. Religious hypocrites, religious people who, who don't want to open their eyes and look around... Because right now there's more signs of the seasons than there's ever been. We're closer to the return of Christ than any generation that's ever lived. Um, my wife, you know, they're doing some stuff on the end times and threw this book to me saying, yeah, you know, I, I've got two of these came by mistake. And, and it's, it's this guy Blackstone who wrote the book on the return of Christ in 1887. And he said, well, this is what's going to happen. I'm going through it. And he says, look, this is what the scripture says. I know it seems impossible, but we have to see the nation of Israel reborn as a nation before Christ comes. 1887, he's writing. We have the word. You know, we have the truth. We have light now. We're walking in a season that Christians, this is really an exciting time to live. This, in some ways, is the most exciting time, most exciting generation the church has ever lived in. You know, he could come tonight, right? It's, he says he's coming at an hour. You think not. Did you lock your houses when you left? Did you lock your cars in the parking lot? He could well be coming because you didn't think he was coming. At this hour, you wouldn't have locked up. You'd have left the house open with all your books about the rapture and the return of Christ and leave your Bibles out for your neighbors, and right? Religious hypocrisy. He says one of the signs of it is not yielding to the the obvious instruction of scripture in regards to what the last days will be like and and the church is apathetic towards that ambivalent it's sad with revival i'm hoping that's all reawakened again as revival comes no signs are going to be given but the sign of the prophet jonah you have any confusion about that, you go back to chapter 12. It says, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. That settles it right there. It happened. Three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That that's a sign. Some try to say, well, that means Christ descended and he was in Hades for three days. Well, that wouldn't be a sign. Who would know that? Nobody would see that. He's talking about the fact that he'd be dead for three days, and three days later he would rise. Jonah was three days, as it were, entombed in the belly of the whale. And then, you know, he gets, again, spit out. That's a preferable way to leave the whale. He gets spit out, and uh, he's bleached like Casper the Friendly Ghost. 
And he walks into Nineveh, which he doesn't like the people there, and just says, repent. His only message is 40 days, destruction is coming, do whatever you want to do with it. And the whole place repents, even the king. Jesus is going to come back from three days, three nights in the heart of the earth, in his resurrection, and he's going to reach the Gentiles in the world. The Gentiles will be drawn to him the same way those, you know, in Nineveh were drawn to Jonah. So um, you folks that struggle with that a bit, the Apostles' Creed originally said, crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead, buried, rose again on the third day. It wasn't until about the third century they interjected, crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead, buried, descended into hell, and rose again on the third day. It was never in the original Apostles' Creed. Jesus said to the thief, today... You'll be with me in paradise, not in Hades, in paradise. You know, Father, I commend in thy hands, I commend my spirit. So um, the sign of Jonah was the fact that the whale spit him out. The sign that Jesus is talking about is the resurrection. The fact that they saw him again three days after he was dead and entombed. Um, That's why we go to Israel. If there was no resurrection, we wouldn't go to Israel. We don't go see where a martyr died. We don't do that anywhere else in the world. If Jesus wasn't risen from the dead, we wouldn't be here tonight. We wouldn't be singing. Yeah, I believed, uh, you know, Buddha's in his pot in the temple, and Zoroaster's in his tomb, Muhammad's in his tomb, and Jesus is uh, he's in a tomb in Jerusalem. Have a good day. See ya. You know, right? Resurrection. This bag of bones is going to get an upgrade. It's going to get an upgrade. All the Lord needs to resurrect you is the software. You know, if you you uh, you take uh, your computer and you dump all the information, does it weigh less? You only need software to recreate the hardware. Because Christians, so, you know, they've been eaten by lions, they've been buried at sea for centuries, for 2,000 years. Their bodies are gone. People, you know, sometimes say that. I want to be cremated. You know, I, I want to be, and that's a preference. You get buried. If it's more expensive, you want to do that, you do that. But in two years, the ground does what the crematorium does in 20 minutes. The, in fact, the sarcophagus in Israel is the flesh eater, and they would lay them in the sarcophagus, and two years later, they come back, there's nothing but bones. They scrape the bones together, put them in an ossuary, and then the spot's open again for somebody else. All he needs is the software. All atoms are fungible. He can use any atoms to make oxygen or nitrogen or any atoms. And all he needs is the software is to recreate the body you have now out of atomic structure. And you'll get an upgrade. you get an upgrade. The new model will do things that you'd like to do now. You have some software there, but the, the hardware can't handle it. The upgrade's going to be wonderful, right? What is that going to be something? Let's stand and pray. And just think, no sickness. You know, the prayer chain in church, there's always somebody has cancer. There's a child that's sick. There's surgery. All of this. Man, oh, man, that's going away soon. That's going away soon. And that's going to be just another praise to our King and to our Savior when when that's behind us. You know, reunions, right? Think of the reunions ahead of us. Lord, I I just lift to you, Lord, anyone here with a broken heart, Lord. Maybe it's over a loved one that's gone to be with you. Maybe it's over news from a doctor. Maybe it's, Lord, they just feel you're silent and haven't answered. Lord, a son or a daughter that's struggling, that Satan is lying to, Lord, about your love and your care. And, Lord Jesus, we can get there. You know us, Lord. You walked in our skin, Lord. You, You can be touched with our infirmities, Lord. And our emotions, Lord. Lord, let us grow in grace and in the knowledge of who you are in our lives. Let us comprehend, as Paul says, the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of God's love towards us in you, Lord Jesus, our Savior. Let us know your voice and your presence, Lord. Still us, Lord, in the morning, those of us who get up in the morning to spend time with you, Lord. Still us. Stagger us, quiet us. Fill our place, Lord. 
of communion with your presence, Lord. Those of us who, who do that at night, Lord, or in the afternoon, wherever it might be, as we draw aside, Lord, still us, Lord. We see you with this woman, Lord. We see you with these Gentile crowds healing as fast as it can happen, Lord. We see you feeding such as us, Lord. We see you speaking to us about the days that we're living in and how you would have us ready, Lord, because you've come out of that tomb. Lord Jesus, we put these things before you. We love you. We thank you. We can gather again as a church. We can look into your word. We can sing your praise, Lord. We thank you so much for that, Lord. And we ask, Lord, as we uh, as we lift our voices now, this would be a sweet savor that would rise before you, Lord Jesus. All the insanity in the world, we pray what comes up right now from Philmont Avenue here, Lord, would be a blessing to you, Lord. Let it be sweet to you, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen.